The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Okay, dear ones, I'm going to continue now with our presentation of Geranda Samhita. Starting with last season, I was uh, making a presentation of one of the most famous texts of Hatha Yoga, Laya Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, the typical type of yoga as we practice it here in Agama. Of course, there are small variations from teacher to teacher, from school to school. And uh, I was about, just about to finish the chapter number three, which is one of the most spectacular, if not the most spectacular chapter of Geranda Samhita. Geranda Samhita is a dialogue between a great yogi from about around 1800, maybe 1795 or something like this, and his disciple Chanda Kapali, where Geranda is explaining all the yoga. He's making a summary of all the yoga of his system. As I said countless times, this text is not really meant to teach you yoga because there are many, 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 many details which are not said <coughs> and which teachers teach directly to the pupils. So this is more like a memento. It's like a memorizer. It's a sort of a summary of what was being taught at the school of Geranda. And of course, when you read about Pashini Mudra or something like this, you remember all the details which you learned from the teacher although they are not all of them written on paper. So it's not the purpose of this text to spill the beans and make a sort of a detailed, millimetrical, clear presentation of yoga, because the ancient gurus considered that yoga has to be learned directly, because it's not only a matter of doing the shoulder stand properly or some other things like that. They thought it is also very much a matter of the spirit of yoga, Remember, in those days, they didn't have audio recordings, video recordings. Today, you could say, if we teach you this and you hear this, and then you see a video clip where it's done at the right speed and in the right way, all these audiovisual methodologies, they did not exist. And therefore, the yogis did not have the feeling that they can properly teach yoga. So that's why this Geranda Samhita, and the chapter 3 in which we are speaks about many spectacular things which excite people and many people say, I would like to do that. But alas, the only way you can do it practically is to take it from courses. Uh, Agama does have such courses. We do explain and uh, teach uh, this kind of techniques. But remember, therefore, that um, there are many, many things unsaid. And here I sometimes give brilliant uh, examples spectacular examples of some of the things which are different when you go from theory to practice. It is also that I'm doing this text because many people want to see a real yoga text. You know, many people say, but Swami, do the traditional texts really say this or that? When I read such a text, you can see that they do. Here and there, there are notes inserted, there are words inserted, there are shlokas, there are verses inserted where you can see that the great things are said, and they are this way. Today, yoga is adulterated, falsified to a large extent, 
And because of this, is he, yoga is taught in other ways. And many people say, how do you know it's not that way? That way is not correct. Why do you claim your way is correct? Because there is a tradition. That tradition, these are not written by me. These things exist since hundreds and some of them since thousands of years in yoga. And that's why we have to be aligned with a tradition. Well, in the chapter number three about mudras, um, Geranda has taught, has planned to teach 25 mudras, and apparently I did about 21 of them until now, because there are still four through which we haven't gone, and the last mudras, none of them is one of the uh, classicals, one of the big ones, spectacular ones, but just important, it will give you a flavor if you didn't hear any of my previous um, satsangs, at least this one will give you a flavor of it. And... Um, if you get inspired, I think all these satsangs are uploaded online, so you, audio format, so you can uh, listen to the recordings. And um, I hope that one day some of you will do the Karma Yoga to transcribe these lectures, and then uh, we can have it in a book format, so you can consult it as well in that way, or at least in digital format, it's more modern. So we are in the end of chapter number three. Uh, Geranda has spoken about mudras, and mudras are very powerful techniques, many of them working upon kundalini shakti, and because of this they produce a lot of paranormal effects and a lot of high-level spiritual effects, and Geranda goes directly there. Now, Geranda, in all the text of Geranda Samhita, you are not going to find one single time a mention of a concept which is treated by some people today in the gymnastic yoga of the West, as it is the holy grail, like if you don't know that, you are not a yoga teacher. Lo, and here that Geranda doesn't say a word about it. It's called, for example, alignment. Geranda doesn't speak about any alignment. He's not interested. He's interested that when you clean a nadi in the vault of your palate, your third eye will open and you are going to start seeing auras. That's for him what yoga is. All these things with alignment and so on, they are just a physical fixation, ultimately. Of course, they serve some purposes, and we ourselves teach a little bit about alignment, but not like this is the alpha and the omega of yoga, because it is not, really. And therefore, listen to the spiritual environment of Geranda. I'm going, I'm in the shloka 84, the chapter number... Uh, three ends at shloka 100, so we still have about 17 shlokas to go. That This I'll definitely finish tonight, and if there is any time, I'll move directly in the chapter number four, which is very short. The 21st, probably, or 22nd of the mudras, which Geranda is teaching, is called Pashini Mudra. Pashini means like a lasso, it means a loop, the loop mudra. Throw the two legs behind the neck, holding them tight like a noose, the noose mudra, the pasha in Sanskrit, pasha pashini. This is called pashini mudra and awakens the shakti kundalini. Like pashini mudra is an asana where you basically bring your legs behind your shoulders and behind your neck. Not everybody can do it. It's a, it starts from a position of the body which is highly elastic and acrobatic, but it doesn't say it heals your hip joints. It probably also does a lot of good to your hip joints. It says it awakens Kundalini Shakti. Like that's what really matters. In a hundred years from now, you're not going to care about your hip joints. 
But if your Kundalini Shakti has been aroused in your lifetime, you are going to still derive enormous benefits from that. So Geranda focuses on what matters ultimately. This great mudra gives strength. It's a word in Sanskrit called bala, like in jiva balasana, bala. It means magnetic vitality, like the energy of the cat, like the cat that has nine lives. That's bala, this kind of energy. So it tells us that it works on this type of vitality and vitality itself. So these are things which sound like second chakra, first chakra. Some of these things don't go directly and tell you the chakras. They speak allusively. It's the teacher that teaches you the chakra. All the rest of the dialogue is oblique very often because you are not supposed to understand all the details from the text. So here the effect says this gives you bala and vitality, which would point to svadhisthana, the cat-like of energy, type of energy, and vitality, the muladhara type of energy. It should be practiced with care by those who desire perfection or Siddhi. The word Siddhi, I said it, but not all of you have been there, and I have to mention it almost every time. The word Siddhi, which means literally in Sanskrit, perfection, is interpreted in the yoga of India in two ways. Some people interpret Siddhi like if you are perfect, it means you are enlightened. That's the real perfection. So it means spiritual perfection. And sometimes Siddhi means perfection of a sense organ or perfection of one of the five elements. And it means you can see what other people cannot see. For example, chakras and auras. You can hear what other people cannot hear. Like, for example, the nada of the mantras, the sounds of the mantras, and so on and so forth. And that, therefore, Siddhi also means paranormal abilities. It means the capacity to do paranormal things. Very often, the yogis, when they use it, they leave it ambiguous. Like you don't know if here he says this mudra should be practiced with care. It's a mudra which is a bit acrobatic and therefore you are pushing some limits there. So he includes the word carefully. Like you shouldn't be insane when you practice this. You should practice it with care, with decency. It should be practiced with care by those who desire perfection or siddhi. But what siddhi? By those who desire paranormal powers or by those who desire spiritual perfection? Probably both. He simply likes to leave it ambiguous like this. In Sanskrit language especially, is liable to be used with double entendre very much. So he has defined this Pashini Mudra in two shlokas. 86, he moves to the 23rd of his limit. We are almost there. Kaki Mudra. Kaki in Sanskrit is a crow, and it um, basically means, or without, if you take it without the breathing, that you have to purse your lips in a certain way. When I learned pranayama and different exercises from different teachers, I was very often surprised to see that as they exhaled the air, and you heard it from your teachers, you know, when a teacher teaches you Udhyana Bandha <coughs> or pranayama later in the Agama program, they teach it to you in a way where that when they exhale, their sound sounds in a peculiar way. And that's the kind of thing which you don't learn from a book. Okay, today with an audio file or with a video file, if you pay attention, it might be transmitted more. But in those days, like when I had teachers doing pranayama, especially when they were doing strong forms of pranayama, they would always exhale by making 
like you are saying the French letter U. It's like you are whistling. And therefore you purse your lips in a certain way when you exhale. You don't just exhale. Exhale through the mouth. No, if I don't have a video or an audio, I can do it like this because isn't this exhaling through the mouth? Yes, but that's not what I meant. When I say exhale through the mouth, I say so you are almost like whistling it. Why? That's what the teachers discovered a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, and then they transmitted. These are the little things which make the craft. So Kaki Mudra is exactly such an auxiliary thing which is done that sometimes the air is taken in or out by making some special gestures of the mouth. They have a special resonance. They create a special energy. And that's why they are not done just absurdly or for show. There is a purpose into it. 86 says, purse the lips like the beak of a crow and draw the air in slowly and slowly, which is a nice way of saying you focus and all that. This is Kaki Mudra, the destroyer of all diseases. The yogis loved nature and animals and trees, and they always learned from nature. And they looked at the crow. The crow can go on a corpse, which is dead by an infectious disease, by an epidemic, and the crow is eating the flesh and the blood of that and doesn't get contaminated. So the yogis said the crow must have a special trick for not taking disease upon itself. The crow sometimes can live a hundred years. It's an intelligent animal, long-lived, and it is sitting on corpses and eating corpses and so on. So how does it cope with all these viruses, bacteria, and things? And that's why the yogis say you do like a crow. This in itself makes you healthy. It's like an archetypal resonance. Uh, a great biologist of the 20th century, who's still alive, Robert Sheldrake, he called this morphogenetic resonance. He called it the morphogenetic fields that, you know, you imitate something, you automatically go into a certain resonance. Even a clumsy human imitation, you know, you do like a crow. But then you get something from the crow. And the crow, the yogis living in the jungle, living in the nature, they thought the crow is a very resistant animal. Therefore, you know, they have the gesture of the tiger, because in the Indian jungle, the tiger is the strongest animal of the jungle. So you do like the tiger. You have the gesture of the horse, which is a power, which you have Hastini Mudra doing like an elephant, like Gajakarani, the Vamana Dauti, and so on. So there are many things in which the yogis imitate the animals which are admirable through some quality. Here, in the case of the crow, they admire its longevity and the fact that it can stay relatively healthy in the middle of a lot of disease. That's why they say, you know, it's a simple thing. You purse the air and go and do a pranayama, of course, out of it. They say this is the Kaki Mudra, the destroyer of all diseases. To many people, these statements sound bombastic and exaggerated. But the yogis always have a capacity of transfiguration. They say, you know, even if it helps you 10%, still it helps you generally. 
about everything. 87. Kaki Mudra is an excellent mudra kept secret in all the tantras. By virtue of this, of this one becomes long-lived, immune, and free from disease like a crow. It sounds such a small thing that you do some pranayamas and you are... But there is a resonance. It cannot be explained scientifically. We don't know exactly why it works, but the yogis simply discovered that some of this thing is helping the human being. Kaki Mudra. Of course, it's not usually done by itself. It is done in more complex ways. In Agama, when we teach Kaki Mudra in the Kundalini program, we show that it's very, very powerful for the heart chakra, and it contains some elements which are not revealed in the text. But if you are like Chanda Kapali, like the disciple of Geranda, and then you read this text 10 years after Geranda, your teacher died, and you say, oh, Kaki Mudra, yeah, I remember. I mean, of course, the old man taught me many other details about it, which are not written here, but which are meant to be transmitted by the teacher to the pupil. The 24th on his list is called Matangini Mudra, and this Matangini Mudra, Matanga, is an elephant, is the, and Matangini is the she-elephant, the female elephant. So Matangini Mudra is something which comes back from the Kriyas. It's called here a Mudra, but actually it comes back to the Neti technologies from the Kriya Yoga, which was taught by Geranda in the first chapter. Says Geranda in Shloka number 88, Stand or sit, both are valid, depending on what you have at your disposal. Stand or sit neck deep in water, draw the water through the nostrils, and expel it through the mouth. This is Jalaneti, until here is the neti with water. Of course, in those days, the rivers and the lakes were not polluted with chemical substances. Even the Ganges could have had dead corpses in it, but it was not polluted with chemicals. Today, it's very difficult to find a stretch of water where you can just pull the water in and so on. So it has to be taken with a pinch of salt. Times have changed. 89. Then, and this is Matangini Mudra, draw it in through the mouth, like drink it, and expel it by the nose. Do this again and again. This is the excellent Matangini Mudra, destroyer of decay and death. Almost everybody, everybody can be taught to, to slurp water through the nose and get it and spit it out through the mouth. That's relatively simple. Can it happen the other way around? Yes, but it's very arcane how you exactly do that. Sometimes when you drink something and then you choke, it touches something in your throat or you speak at the same time, you want to say something and you forgot you are drinking and you are coughing or something happens and then it comes up your nose and it's usually unpleasant, it doesn't feel really good. Well, that Matangini Mudra is you have to learn to do that deliberately. Do something so that the water can directly come out through the nose. Imitate exactly the situation when you are choking and coughing while drinking and then it goes in the nose. That's what you have to do. But the praise of it is this is the excellent, excellent. There is a word used with pra, para. The word para is used but in a declination. This is the para, the excellent Matangini Mudra. Many people say, come on, Swami, this is a small thing. Well, Geranda doesn't think so. 
Keranda says this is the excellent Matangini Mudra, destroyer of decay and death. Like it prevents the signs of old age and it can postpone death. I'm not saying there are urban legends in yoga that some people live 300 years, 800 years, 2000 years and so on. I'm not saying it's not possible. We teach that biologically it has been demonstrated that tissues can live way longer than we think that they can. But of course, until you will check scientifically such a thing, they are just legends. However, these legends abound too much in yoga, like they don't exist in the Christian monasteries. They are, there's no Christian monastery where they say, if you pray to Jesus like this, you will live forever and you will eliminate death and decay. There isn't. But this effect is mentioned in yoga in almost every text of yoga for thousands of years again and again. As they say, there is no smoke without some form of fire. So there must exist in the yoga tradition some stuff that has inspired repeatedly and obsessively these statements that people do this or that. Remember, even Udhyana Banda in the first level intensive in Agama, Udhyana Banda, which is like a lion to the elephant of death. Death is compared to an elephant and Udhyana Banda with a lion, which can kill the elephant. So Udhyana Banda can kill your death. This statement exists so often that you say, were these people obsessed with all of them? Like, why didn't there come Svatmarama, who wrote the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, another text? And then he said, well, actually, you read in the other texts of my colleagues some funny stuff and take it with a pinch of salt. It's not quite so. No, but Svatmarama resumes the same statements. And so does Shiva Samhita. And so does Goraksha Sataka. And you are wondering, are all these people crazy or they planned to, you know, to give bullocks to the whole world? Or there is something, really. So until we find out scientifically exactly what it is, here is Geranda speaking about the fact that if you just expel water from the mouth, from the throat to the nose, this is Matangini Mudra, excellent, which is destroyer of decay and death. To which extent? How much? This is not said. It's open field. No? Some people can say, if I do yoga like Babaji, the guru of the guru of the guru of Yogananda, I can basically live forever and reach the diamond body, reach some physical immortality. And some people can say, well, if I do this kind of stuff, probably I'll live 20 years more than everybody. The average person lives to 80. I'll manage to push it to 100 in my case because I'm having a clean diet. I'm doing Kriyas, I'm doing Hatha Yoga, and then you can, you know, if you extend the average lifespan of a yogi 20 years, you can say that those techniques are, to a certain extent, destroyers of decay and death. So the statement is not 100% true, but it's not 100% false as well. as some shade in there. And he says, in the shloka number 90, in a solitary place, free from human intrusion, the yogis were always this kind of solitaries. I'm not saying that you have to be a total hermit, but at least for some periods of time, you need to be able to take a break. If you are sick with socialitis, 
then it's very difficult to do some hard things in yoga. Most of the yoga texts require that sometime you should just isolate yourself and do some serious practice for yourself. The minimum which we can do here in Agama to inspire people from it is to offer every month retreats. Like you can go at least in a seven day, eight day, 10 day, whatever retreat. And in those retreats, you can at least give it an intensive push without going on the internet, without doing too much, without communicating too much, just at least of a small imitation of some of the great things in yoga. So Yaranda is not afraid to say in a solitary place, free from human intrusion. Why? Maybe the human intrusion is making you rub shoulders too much with people, exchange energies in your aura. You do eight hours of yoga and your aura is shining pure. And then you just jam yourself in the London tube with 120 meat eaters and other people. And your aura is becoming 50% more impure just because you are smelling each other's socks and flatulence and rubbing shoulders and having too much physical nearness, right? And therefore, what I'm saying here is sometimes there is a virtue in keeping your distance and doing some of your things, especially when you want to grow up a lot. So in a solitary place, free from human intrusion, not forever, but when you do this, in the period when you practice this, one should practice with one focused attention, this Matangini Mudra, and one will become strong like the elephant. If you do Kaki Mudra, you become long-lived and healthy like the crow. If you do like the elephants, because the elephants are spraying through their nose, through their trunk, so if you just exactly like the elephants do that, then you are going to acquire something from the elephant. It's interesting that the nose is related to Muladhara. The elephant is a typical animal of Muladhara chakra. And here he says, if you do this, one will become strong like the elephant. It doesn't say you are going to have the memory of an elephant. It says strong like an elephant. So it definitely refers to something about Muladhara chakra. 91, the last for Matangini Mudra. Wherever he may be, like, no, then it stays with you. That's an interesting statement. Wherever you will be, the yogi enjoys great joy and happiness. Therefore, this mudra must be practiced with great consideration. It's a simple thing, no? Learn to eject water through your nose like an elephant does through its trunk. It looks almost like a circus thing. And yet, Geranda says it's an excellent mudra and it should be practiced with great consideration, which means always ring a bell, ring a bell, ring a bell. There is a secret hiding here. Pay attention. There is something we can't explain scientifically, but there is too much insistence. There are four shlokas given to this, and it sounds a silly circus thing, like you're just no, gushing water through your nostrils. And yet it's the destroyer of death and decay, becomes strong like the elephant, and it gives you great joy and happiness. But that's pretty good, I would say. No, if, if that is coming just because you train to gush water through your nose, and it's worth it. It probably takes 10 days, and then that skill can come to you. It doesn't take an infinite amount of time to learn that one. And thus we reach to the 25th and last of the mudras which Garanda is sharing to his disciple, Chanda. 
expressed in just two verses, Bujangini Mudra, Bujanga like in Bujangasana, Bujanga means serpent or in particular cobra, so it's the serpent mudra. It's a funny one, 92. Extending the neck a little forward, so it's an attitude, it's a small attitude. Draw the air through the throat or esophagus, like when you inhale and you naturally feel that you are pushing. So draw the air through the throat. This is called Bujangini Mudra, destroyer of decay and death. Obviously, you can realize something is not being said, right? Like, it sounds too simple. And then you are just doing like this and inhaling. It doesn't say through the mouth, through the nose, <coughs> because it says you inhale through the throat, but the word which is used in Ayurveda can also mean esophagus. And then it means you are drawing the air in the stomach, not in the lungs. Because if you know enough anatomy, to the lungs you have the trachea, and the esophagus goes to the stomach. There's a division somewhere here in your throat. And this one says, push forward, and then that's exactly what the boys do, and some more bold women, when they want to burp, to give a burping. So you put your throat in a special position, and then you draw air inside. And then, of course, you burp it back. So it's a special position. It's a special contraction here. So this is called Bujanga. But then it becomes the Vata Saradhauti as well. So it is equivalent to a Kriya. What does it do in mudras? Is this just the only thing that you are using a position? Because mudra is a gesture. This mystery is not explained here. Of course, yoga teachers that teach this they have been taught about the exact ways of doing. Bujangini Mudra, destroyer of decay and death. 93, now it shows us more. This Bujangini Mudra quickly destroys all stomach diseases, especially indigestion, dyspepsia, and so on. Oh, so it is about the stomach, right? Then the esophagus was the right meaning. And then this is a Mudra where you just draw air in the stomach which is the same with the Vatasara Dauti from the system of Kriyas, which Garanda described in chapter number one. So actually good news for those of you who know how to burp at will. It's actually a good yoga exercise. It shows you have a good control, and if you do it, but of course there are more details which are not put here, so learn it properly, and then you can do it. But it says it destroys all stomach diseases, especially indigestion, dyspepsia, and so on. That's pretty good for a small thing like that. And the last six shlokas, seven shlokas, are just conclusions because the chapter on shlokas has been very spectacular, very big, and uh, Geranda now wants to uh, conclude this most spectacular chapter. 94, O Chanda Kapali, Thus have I explained to you the lesson on mudras, is the chapter 3 as we call it. They are highly treasured by all the adepts called siddhas. Siddhas are people who have siddhis or who have reached enlightenment. Yeah? So these are the adepts of yoga. They are highly treasured by all adepts and they destroy decay and death. He gives a sort of a general note what has been mentioned most often. Why would the mudras do have a general note, destroying decay and death, because they work with Kundalini. And in the moment when you work with Kundalini, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of paranormal stuff can happen and does happen, 
It only depends on the amount of practice which you are giving to it. So he is very clear. He says the mudras are highly treasured. Here in Agama, we teach them in the Kundalini program, and they destroy decay and death. 95, they should not be taught indiscriminately, not to the wicked, not to those without devotion. Why? Because if you give the Kundalini power to the wicked, their wickedness is just going to find a very powerful instrument to express itself. So the gurus were always very careful you know, that you teach some of the things only to some people who have been tested and verified. So they are not to be taught to the wicked or to those without devotion. Why? Because those without devotion have a problem with their Anahata Chakra. And if they have a problem with their Anahata Chakra, they will have no devotion and they might not have love, forgiveness, tolerance, and other beautiful values. And then, you know, if your dominant chakra is Manipura and your Anahata chakra is a city in China, you have no devotion, and then you do Kundalini Yoga, and then when somebody in a bus or in a subway steps on your toes, you are just going through the roof because now you are a Kundalini practitioner with a huge power in your body, and then even instinctively, without thinking too carefully about the details, you may get to do something stupid, you know? You may notice after three months that everybody who talks against you gets a headache or next day has a flu. And instead of realizing that you are on the way to become a demon, you actually get proud of it and you like it. <laughs> people, you know, people who are standing against me, I know it, you know, every day they get a headache immediately, you know. That makes you a semi-demon already. You shouldn't be happy about it. You should be sad because if you are having that effect on people, no? Because that's like a black magician who is unforgiving, wicked, no? And wants to impose his ego at all cost to show that he is the strongest. You can be the strongest if you do Kundalini Yoga, but it doesn't mean you are a bodhisattva, doesn't mean you are compassionate, doesn't mean you are a good person. And if you give to people headaches or flus just because they argue with you, then it doesn't mean you are not getting the karma, because you are still getting the karma from those. Even when you act in a subtle way, the karma is still there, because the karma is the final result of your action. It, it refers to that. And that's why Geranda says these are positive, powerful things, should not be taught to the wicked, they should not be taught to those without devotion, they should be preserved secret with consideration, like these are powerful tools, since they are difficult to attain even by the devas. Kundalini Yoga, says Geranda, is difficult to attain even by the devas. This is a very cryptic statement. It is made several times in the yoga text. And you can say, what do you mean? The devas are the deities, like Zeus or Jupiter, you know? You mean that Jupiter cannot attain a Mahamudra or Bujangini Mudra? And why? Because the gods see everything, know everything. They, somehow, their existential condition prevents them from doing some things. Because, for example, they don't have a physical body. They don't have a physical body. And some of the things which are done via the physical body, they can't do it. It sounds very paradoxical to human beings to hear that some things which are possible to the human beings are not possible to the devas. But it is said repeatedly 
from Greek mythology to Indian mythology that sometimes the devas, the superhuman deities, they envy the humans. Like humans can sit under a Bodhi tree and become Buddhas, while the devas are sitting in their paradises and they are not doing anything. Although they know a hundred times more than you do and they can see. And somehow they are paralyzed. They are stuck into their existential condition. It is said in the Indian mystical texts that in the Kali Yuga, when humanity is sparse and very spiritual, then sometimes the devas take a human body, like they are born as the child of X and Y, of Mr. and Mrs. Jones, and they walk the surface of the earth looking like human beings, but actually being incarnated devas, so that by being incarnated devas, they can actually do some yoga or some Sufi dance or some other things which are done by the physical body, and with the help of those, push themselves out of the deadlock where they are. That's why the human condition is very privileged. That's why the yogis say, if you got a free, well-endowed human body, you should do something with it, because the gods are standing in line to get a body like yours. The gods wish that it's difficult to obtain, and when you obtain it, you could theoretically in one life hit nirvana, which is an infinite gift. It's like it's immeasurable compared with any, to anything else. And that's why here they say this mudra should be preserved secret. That's an obsession with the yogis with consideration, like it's like you are storing dynamite on a shelf. You know, it's a powerful instrument. Since they are difficult to attain even by the devas, this shows that there are many karmic blockages. We often tell to people, if you learn kundalini yoga properly from a teacher who helps you to move your kundalini and teaches you the secrets of it, you have a good karma. Or you have done that in a previous life. Or you were this close to it in your previous life and now you've just reached the threshold which allows you to go there. Not everybody is learning Kundalini Yoga. Kundalini Yoga is already a level of yoga which is a direct access to some higher things and um, it matters very much. Kundalini Yoga and we see it's not I who says it here, it's Garanda. He says these mudras are sometimes difficult to attain even by the gods, even by the devas. Don't take it like a metaphor. It expresses a reality of the subtle world which makes that some entities need to become human. Like Tibetans said, there are women who can be identified very seldom, it's true. They have violet eyes. One of the signs, typical signs is violet eyes that are incarnated Dakinis. Like why would Dakinis become human females? Why would they bother? Because apparently it gives something. It's a possibility. It opens some doors and thus um, some things are difficult to attain even by the gods. The gods can look at you and see you doing your Viparita Karani Mudra, but it doesn't mean that they can reproduce it. It doesn't mean that they can do it. For doing it, they would have to incarnate in a human body and remember it and then do it. Therefore, the human body has a great value 
It means much more than most people uh, tell about it. 96. These mudras bestow happiness and liberation. This is where the text demonstrates itself to be purely tantric in this way. Although Geranda is not the most sexually tantric author, is a pretty tame author when it comes to many of these Kundalini things, here he says a sentence which is typical tantric because he says these mudras bestow bhoga and mukti, moksha. They bestow pleasures, like with the mudras you can have fun because it makes your body good, it purifies, it heals, it does this and that. And kundalini is something which enhances a lot of stuff in your life. And also these mudras give liberation. Like if you want to lead the energy all the way to Sahasrara, then they will bestow spiritual gifts. That's why the word Siddhi is used ambiguously, because if you put it in Manipura, then you can get some crazy Siddhi from Manipura. If you take it to Sahasrara, then it can give some wonderful spiritual effect on Sahasrara. Ultimately, it is the pupil who makes the decision of what you do with this energy. So these mudras bestow happiness and liberation. That's a very important statement because our competition, so to say, in Indian environment, the Vedantic spiritualists, they say that if you choose bhoga, you are never going to have yoga. Bhoga and yoga are like the water and oil. They never mix. So the people who choose yoga are not going to have pleasure, which sounds pretty terrible. And the people who choose boga, pleasures, they are not going to have time and energy to reach yoga. It's a very black and white thing, which is not tantric. Here, Geranda himself says, it's the same said abundantly into Kashmiri Shaivas, for those of you who will study it. But here, Geranda in Kundalini Yoga and Hatha Yoga says, these mudras bestow happiness and liberation. Kundalini goes in the lower chakras, it bestows siddhis, satisfaction, enjoyment of prakriti. Kundalini goes in sahasrara, it bestows spiritual light and pure spirit. Ultimately, you can do it one day like this, one day like that, one day like this, one day like that, and then you are with one foot in the world and with one foot in the spirit in the transcendent spirit. And yoga has no problems with that, at least this kind of yoga, kundalini type of yoga. So they bestow boga and liberation. They may be revealed to those that are sincere, honest, and of peaceful mind, who have supreme devotion to their teacher, and who are members of the kula, or the inner circle. Five conditions. Again, to whom would Geranda gladly teach the Kundalini Mudras? To those that are sincere. First one, sincere. Like yogis dislike hypocrisy. No. You do yoga, you are sincere in your efforts. Honest, which means practicing truthfulness, being truthful. And of peaceful mind, some people who suffer from vata deregulations, from vata disorders, they have an extremely agitated mind and sometimes it becomes pathological. Like you see people, they can't sit for a meditation, they can't sit for a relaxation. Geranda says if you see one of these quivery ones, don't teach them the mudras. It's too early for them to learn the mudras. 
The mudras should be taught to people who have a peaceful mind. If people come and say, uh, my boyfriend has just uh, gone to have sex with somebody else and I feel I'm going crazy, then this is a person who is a bit disqualified for Kundalini Yoga because you should be able to have a peaceful mind. Bring your mind back to peace. If it's very easy to get you out of balance, then Kundalini Yoga may create havoc, may play havoc, may create a mess by simply amplifying your emotions and therefore your imbalance. So there is something about peaceful mind. Here in Agama we don't teach Kundalini before people have done 14 levels of Agama, which is time enough for some purification, minimalistic concentration of the mind, a bit of peaceful mind, a bit of moral and ethical self-analysis and culture, and more of those. Fourth condition, those who have supreme devotion to their teacher. He doesn't use the word bhakti. He used the word para-bhakti, supreme devotion to their teacher, which is interpreted in para-bhakti is a not necessarily anahata type of connection. Para-bhakti is a more sahasrara type of connection with a teacher, like I and the teacher are one, this shaivistic type of connection, or indeed a lot of devotion. Devotion is needed, especially when the pupils get in trouble. Because when the pupil gets in trouble, they don't listen. They don't listen. We've had recently a couple of people that were in some trouble, most of it health-related. And the funny thing that the people didn't have patience, the people didn't have trust, they simply said, oh, I'm suffering so much, I'm so disturbed, I'm this, I'm going to do some panchakarma in India, although they knew that other people did it and they suffered terribly and it didn't solve any problem, really, no, because it was poorly done, and so on. And therefore, this is what devotion is all about, you know. It's like devotion is that when you are in a crisis, the teacher is coming and telling you, now it would be the best for you if you did 50 Udhyana Bandhas and went on Oshava diet today. And then people say, ah, what do you know? No? If that's your relationship with your teacher, your teacher can't really help you when you are in shit. When you are in deep shit, then you are going to lose, lose your confidence and then you are not going to appeal to practically the only person in the world who has followed you all along your path and who approximately knows where you are and which would be the best thing for you. And that's sad. So Geranda says, I wouldn't want to take into my mudra education, kundalini education, somebody who lacks devotion in me. Not because they have to kiss my big toe, but because when the crisis will come, and it's sure that it will come sooner or later, they have to be able to trust. And finally, and who are members of the inner circle. There was this system in the old days that gurus in India were a sort of teachers, like gurus very often were the only ones who spoke Sanskrit. The gurus were very often Brahmins and they knew how to read and write. And even Ramakrishna, when he was six years old, he was sent to a village school, to one of the Brahmins, where he learned to read and write, and he even learned a bit of Sanskrit. So the guru in India 
does not really start like you came, I'm going to teach you Udhyana Banda. The gurus in India start from reading and writing, from teaching you a little bit of Bhagavad Gita, the sayings of Krishna, the basic spirituality of your people, of your nation, of your country, history, a bit of metaphysics. And then, if some, that's why some pupils come to a guru, they spend three years with a guru, they have learned to read, to write, they have remembered some quotes from the Bhagavad Gita, they have learned maybe how to clean their nostrils with salt water or how to clean their tongue with an instrument, and then they go home, they get married, they have children, and all their lives they have a sort of a nice respect for their Guruji. Maybe they ask for a mantra, they say, Guruji, recommend me a mantra, and the Guruji says, repeat Om Namah Shivaya every morning 108 times, or something. Like that's a Guru in India, especially in the old days, in the rural areas. This is how Gurus were. And that's why not everybody got to be in the inner circle. Like the inner circle, the more pupils stayed with the Guru, the more pupils said, Guruji, I'm not really ready right now to go and, uh, you know, study engineering or get a couple of kids and start a family. Right now I feel like I still want to sit with you and learn more. Like if, if you've got more to teach me, I will stay with you. And thus the more people will stay and go with the guru, the more it's like a pyramid. It becomes narrower and narrower. There are fewer and fewer people whom it's a sort of a natural selection. It's like a filtering. And therefore, and that's practiced in all the esoteric schools. And that's why at some point when people reach and study Kundalini and so on, they become more of an inner circle. Like they, then they are, those are the old pupils, the reliable ones. The guru has tested them, has observed them, knows their strong parts, their weak parts, and is guiding them further. This inner circle was called Kula, which means... Uh, a good, the good family, the noble family. Kula uh, expresses the Guru Kula is the inner circle of the Guru, the closer devotees, the disciples who have already passed some of the tests and also the very, very important test of time and of patience. 97, these mudras destroy all kinds of diseases and increase the inner fire called Jatar Agni for him who practices them regularly. So he again, he sums up, he wants to close the chapter. These are the words which Geranda gets when he wants to kind of sum up. He says, these mudras destroy all kinds of diseases, so they are very good for health as well, increase the inner fire for him who practices them regularly. The inner fire is considered, this Jatar Agni, is considered in Ayurveda the essence of life. It is considered that the older you go, especially if you are not having a good pitta dosha, the more your inner fire decreases. The more you start putting on fat, the more your digestion becomes imperfect. You suffer from dyspepsia, indigestion, weak digestion, slow digestion. You start getting constipated and other and other corollaries to this. And this weak inner fire is the sign that you are going towards death. Like as long as you have a blazing fire inside you, it means you are healthy, you are strong. For them, the fire was a sign of vitality and health, 
manifested, of course, at the level of Manipura Chakra, like the inner fire, the inner digestion. It's important to remember because the yogis consider that Manipura Chakra is the chakra that dominates our health condition. So, Garanda says these mudras increase the inner fire to those who practice it regularly. That's a corollary. It's a collateral effect. 98. Death and decay through old age will not come to him. He needs no longer fear fire, water, or air. Of course, it means earth, fire, earth, water, fire, air, and ether. When they write it like this, it means not only three elements out of five. It means all the five elements. The yogic metaphysics said that you can die by the earth, such as buried under a mudslide or in a train crash. You can die by water, drowning and something like this. You can die by fire. You can die by air, like suffocated, intoxicated, poison. And you can die by the ether, which is very rare and it's not really considered. A typical example would be going out in the void, in the outer space, without a protection suit or something. So you can die because of the five elements manifested too strong for you. Too much fire will set your blood boiling and you will die. Too much water will drown you and so on and so on. So he says, by these mudras, one controls the five elements. Death and decay through old age will not come to him, which is again a very big, bold statement. 99. Cough, asthma, enlargement of the spleen, leprosy, and 20 diseases of the phlegmen bile are verily destroyed by the practice of these mudras. So interesting, he says they are more for diseases of the phlegm, kapha dosha, and bile, pitta dosha, not so much for diseases of vata dosha. Actually, we know that people that have disorders of vata dosha, they sometimes have problems with the mudras. The mudras might be a bit too much for them. And it gives a list. Is this all? Probably not, but you see Garanda lives in a village like a yogi. He lives in a hut in the jungle, and he simply says what he has seen in his life. What are the problems that people had in India in 1800? Around cough, asthma, enlargement of the spleen, leprosy, 20 diseases of the phlegmen, bile, which means scores of them, and so on. So he simplifies it, but he simply says, with these mudras, you can really go strong like this. The last shloka, which will conclude my discourse of tonight. One, the 100th shloka of this chapter, which is the longest of all the six chapters of Garanda Sampita. Concludes Garanda, O Chanda, his disciple to whom he is talking, O Chanda, what more shall I tell you? In short, there is nothing in this earth mandala, which means the world, the planet earth, he calls it the mandala of the earth, it's like a mandala, it's a symbol, it's, not, it's, a, it's a sphere of the universe, mandala means circle, so it's a circle because the planet is round as well. There is nothing in this earth mandala or world that equals the mudras in giving quick siddhi or perfection. Siddhi, paranormal or spiritual? Both. Or it is left on purpose in the limbo, like that. So he says, I mean, I spoke a hundred shlokas. You see how wonderful they are. What more shall I tell you? In short, there is nothing in this earth mandala, in this earthy world, in this physical world, that equals the mudras 
He says there's nothing better than the mudras for giving quick siddhi, whatever quick siddhi means. Thus ends the third lesson of Giranda Samhita in the dialogue between Giranda and Chanda called Mudra Prayoga, how to produce the mudras. Prayoga means to put them into action. Mudra Prayoga of the Gatashta Yoga, talking about therefore Gatashta is the physical body, how to do yoga with the physical body. And with this, I will stop for tonight. Simply, we had a few more minutes, but there's no need to push because the next lecture will be about Pratyahara, and it's the shortest of the lessons. In the classical text, it has only seven shlokas, but there are a few secret versions of this text where it goes up till 18 shlokas. And of course, I have taken the extended version here for you. About the very little known and talked about branch of yoga, level of yoga, step of yoga, which is called Pratyahara. I will not start it today, uh, simply for your mind keeping the subjects partitioned, separated in a clear way. Next time, next week most probably, if everything goes as planned, we, I will continue with the chapters 4 and then 5 very quickly about this. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining the satsang. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.